You are listening to Paragon Church's Sunday, August 4th sermon on Don't Bury Your Gifts, Ministry and Evangelism. For more information about Paragon Church, visit paragonchurch.com. I want to let you know we are in our third week, or sorry, third month of our mixtapes. And we've been talking about these mixtapes, and we've been talking about from the beginning, we've talked about making the mix and how to hit the stop and the play and the record and the fast forward and the rewind buttons. Then we did the soundtrack to our soul during the month of July and we tackled the Psalms and a number of our our, uh, guys stepped up and spoke to you on that. And then this month we are actually going to be diving into our core anthems. Our core anthems. Now, by definition, an anthem is a usually rousing popular song that typifies or identified with a particular subculture, movement, or point of view. An anthem basically shapes and describes a generation, maybe a decade. If I said, think of the anthem rock songs of the 80s, my guess is, is those of you who grew up in that point in time could have them register. Maybe some of you it's the 70s. Maybe some of you it's the 90s. After the 90s, all music kind of fell apart. So it's, it's unfortunate there's no rock songs or anything good in that. But these are the anthems that defined that culture. And what we want to talk about this month is the anthems that really define us. The anthems that really define us, and when you first walk in, you'll see our welcome center over here, and you'll see our anthems, our core values on the wall. You'll see them on this banner here beside me. If you grab one of our new August bulletins, you'll see them on the front of the bulletin. These are who we are at the core. And this is what we want to be defined by. We want it to be defined both inside the church as well as outside the church. We want to be seen in this particular way. And I, I want us to truly believe that we are a church that growing people can change at. That growing people will change here. That discipleship and growth happen here at Paragon. I want us to truly believe that in worship, I cannot outgive God. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. It's not much, but God, it's what I have. You gave all. I give you my life back. I want to say that I can't do life alone. The idea of community, the idea of connection, the idea of being together and doing life together. Because as we will see, and as we'll talk about a little bit this morning and more throughout this month, man, we are stuck in the middle of a loneliness epidemic. And that's not me making up a term. That's actual secular psychologists and, and and all different types of philosophers that say that is where we are. Even though we are so connected, we're so distant from one another. Also, the two that we're going to talk about today, found people, find people. Evangelism at the heart of our church. Wanting to reach out to people and sharing our faith should be at the forefront of what we do and who we are. And then saved people, served people. Saved people, serve people because of what God has done for us, our natural response is to do back for him. But before we go into that, I have a quick little video I want to show you. And it's from a movie in the 80s. We're going to do just a quick little flashback. We didn't do at the movies this year, but a quick little flashback to a movie from my childhood. When I was about 10 years old, this movie came out. 
But there's a, there's a, uh, I know, and then you're like, oh, 80, 10. Yeah, exactly. I'm getting older every day. But the, the, the thing is, I want you to see this movie for the funny part of it all. And guess what? We're going to have some questions kind of like we did. And I have a plethora of candy up here for you to choose from. But I want you to see this video also as it describes the church. Would you play that video for me? I love that movie. As a matter of fact, we introduced it to Camden not too long ago, and I still hear him watch it over and over again, laugh hysterically at it. But uh, my first question for you this morning, if you'd like a box of candy, if somebody just needs to raise their hand and tell me what movie it actually is. Okay, Eric, come on up. Choose something from the plethora, and if you uh, got that reference ahead of time, yes, uh, plethora, we don't have pinatas, we just have boxes of candy. But uh, second question I have for you is I need you to tell me, not the characters' names, now if you do the characters' names, I'll be really impressed, but just the names of the three actors that were just in there. Bob. I'm, I'm hearing it, it's being whispered all around. <laughs> Chevy Chase is correct. Bob, come and choose something, if you would, please. And last thing, I told you uh, a basic kind of so help you out with this answer, and I was about 10 years old when it came out, but does anybody know what year it came out? Camden? 86 is correct, because he knew that I was born in 76. So come on up here and, and get something now. As we see that, and as you see that, and you're like, I, I can't believe we showed Three Amigos this morning. And yes, we did show Three Amigos this morning. But it truly, when I saw that clip, and I've seen that movie probably too many times. I've seen that movie so many times that I've missed how much that particular scene describes the church when it comes to found people, find people, and saved people, serve people. Because as I watched that clip and I saw those things, we live in a land, we live in a culture that is a dry and desert land. And people are looking for something to drink, something to quench their thirst. They're going to canteens that only partially satisfy, or they're going to canteens that are full of dirt. And we, as the church, Chevy Chase in the picture, 
are wasting the living water. And we're not sharing it. As a matter of fact, all we're doing is offering something they don't need, like lip balm. I mean, stop and think about it. We as the church, think about what we have going on in our society. Think about all the things that are out there, and we're trying to offer some sort of Band-Aid prescription to cover up that little thing instead of giving them the one thing they actually need, the living water to quench their thirst. Found people, we find people. That's evangelism. It's going and sharing our faith. It's going and sharing the gospel. Save people, they serve people. They love with the love of Jesus so people can see and people can feel who God is through us. And I've seen that clip, like I said, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and I've never really put it together, but that's us, and that's the world, and that's the church. And, and I said earlier already, we're living in the midst of this loneliness epidemic, and people are in desperate need of connection, and people are in desperate need of being plugged in. I don't know who walked in here thirsty. I don't know who walked in here going last night to the wrong well taking that little canteen, just getting a few drops out of it to satisfy for that short time. I don't know who was digging in the dirt and is staring at the church with mud all over their face as we gargle and spit and waste what we've been given. And I got to thinking about that as I was watching the news. And unfortunately, as I watched the news yesterday, three different stories were just impactful. One, El Paso, 20 people dead. Nobody knows why a guy went into Walmart and shot it up. Nobody knows why he picked who he is. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Apparently, he wrote a manifesto, but it hasn't been released yet. Nobody knows what happened in Ohio or why. Nobody even knows why the park behind my house, they had a a teenager with multiple gunshot wounds who died last night. Nobody knows. But I can tell you why. And it doesn't have anything to do with being politicized. It doesn't have anything to do with gun laws. It doesn't have anything to do with with all the things that that our politicians and such will probably gather around and use in their their different party primaries and things like that. It has one thing, and that's the fact that we live in a hopeless generation. There is no hope in this world for this world. The only hope for this world is from out of this world. It is from heaven. It was sent down in the form of a baby that grew up to be a man that lived a perfect life, that died a perfect death for me and for you. And then he rose again so that we could have hope. Hope is what people need. Not more laws, not more people telling them what they have to do, but instead just sharing with them that God has provided an eternal hope. That there is a living water. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls himself the living water when he is sitting next to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He says, I am the living water. Drink from me and you won't thirst anymore. And she's like, what do you mean? And people are missing because nobody is actually telling it. And I think about all the things that go on in this world, and it just trickles down to hopelessness and meaningless and worthlessness. And I think about babies who are killed in the womb, and I think about elderly who are are euthanized. Uh, There's a story that came out of France. I'm not sure if you saw that just a couple of weeks ago. The guy was in a semi-vegetative state. He wasn't even completely a vegetable. He just wasn't able to feed himself. And the courts decided to starve him to death because his life wasn't worth being on a ventilator or being fed through a tube. 
Like, who makes that decision? And at what point in time are you okay with just killing somebody because you don't think they're worth it? That's hopelessness. That's worthlessness. That's meaninglessness. That's why we have people struggling with who their identity is. That's the reason why people are getting mad at Mario Lopez for telling them, hey, you shouldn't tell a three-year-old to make up their own decision on what their gender should be. Because that's just dumb. And everybody went, what? Uh, I have kids. And at age three, they weren't making life decisions. Okay? I can guarantee that. But yet our community, our, our culture has gotten so warped in their mind, and they're missing it. And the reason why, it's not their fault. They're lost. Lost people are supposed to act like lost people. The problem is they're still lost because found people aren't finding them. It's the church's fault. We have negated our responsibility. We have been given so much. And we're just watching them eat dirt. We're watching them go to the wrong canteen. As a matter of fact, we're telling them, hey, that's a dumb idea. They don't have anything else. And we're not giving them the right idea. And we're just throwing lip balm in their general direction. Here's the thing. It's about hope. But where do we get that hope? From knowing Jesus. And how are they going to hear about that hope? Well, Romans says, they can't hear if nobody tells them. That's us. We're that nobody. We, we have to take that step. And that's why we find our two core anthems we're going to talk about today that found people, find people, and save people, serve people. You know where they come from? Commands from Jesus himself. Commands from Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, there's three passages that are the focal points of all of our real push for core values. And they're all from Jesus. And they're all commands, not suggestions, commands. And this is the first one I want you to look at. And it's called the great commandment. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 39. He says, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus answered him and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. But the second is like it. You know what the second is? Love your neighbor like yourself. What does it mean to love? Well, that's a discussion we're going to get into here real soon. Because sometimes we have this watered-down version of love that just means, hey, you know what? Let them do whatever you want because you don't want to step on their toes. Well, guess what? If my kids wanted to go out and play on 528 right now, I would tell them no. You know why? Because they could hurt themselves. I'm not doing it because I don't love them. It's because I love them that much. I don't want to see them hurt themselves. It's okay to be a disciplined person. It's okay to pass that and share that with somebody else without worrying about offending them or hurting their feelings. We need to love our neighbors ourselves. Second one, called the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Jesus came near and said to them, his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I want you to see this word, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know what it means to baptize? This word means to immerse. We want you, Jesus wants you to immerse people in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. He wants you to immerse them. And then it goes on from there. He says, teaching them to obey everything I've what? Commanded. What's everything that Jesus commanded? Can you guys start listing that off for me? Yeah, neither can I. Because that's a long list. Everything's a lot. But that's part of the whole idea of discipleship, that growing people change. We invest in each other. And we continue to pour in each other. It's not some class that gets over in six weeks. It's a lifetime commitment of connecting together and growing together. 
And it says this, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The third one that we find our core values is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There is so much to be found in these passages, and I can go on and on about them if you want me to, but I actually have a message today. So we're going to talk about these for the next four weeks and really touch on it, but that's what you need to understand. This is where our core values come from. This is why we are a church, because this is what God has called us to be. I do love in that verse, though, of chapter 8. It says, but when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Do you realize that if you're a believer, you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you? The power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. We've also been given a responsibility. These commands are responsibilities if you were a believer. We've been given commands. We've been given hope. And if you look throughout the Bible, we've been given a whole lot more. We sang about it. I love Come Thou Fount. That's probably one of my favorite hymns, but as it talks about the grace we've been given. We've been given grace. We've been given mercy. We've been given truth. We've been given the good news of the gospel that is Jesus Christ. That is what we have been given. The question I have for you this morning and the question that's going to permeate throughout this discussion this morning is this. What are you going to do with what you've been given? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with what you've been given? Are we investing it in all things that God has put in our lives, whether it be another person or a, a, just a friend, a family member? Who is it? Are we investing that? Or are we just hoarding those gifts that we've been given, the grace and the mercy and Jesus himself and the hope and, and even the natural gifts? Are we holding those for ourselves? Or are we willing to share them and invest them as Jesus has called us to do? Are we sharing the living water? Are we sharing the gifts that come with it? As we begin to answer that question, I would love for you to do me a favor. If you have your Bibles with you today, I've already read a couple of verses out of Matthew, but I want you to go to Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25, we see Jesus talking in Jerusalem. This is the week before he's going to the crucifixion. And he's in Jerusalem. He's already done the whole Palm Sunday thing. Everybody's already said Hosanna to him. And now he's teaching his disciples what's called the, basically the end times discourse. And he's teaching them about what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like in the end times. And as you may or may not know, he teaches in parables a lot of times. And parables are an earthly story that have a heavenly meaning. And in Matthew chapter 25, we see him doing exactly this, starting in verse 14. And he's talking about, basically, what's going to happen is, is real soon I'm getting ready to leave. As a matter of fact, it's only going to be a couple of days. I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to raise again, and I'm going to be heading back to the Father. And as I head back to the Father, you're going to be left behind with some commands. As a matter of fact, even Acts 1-8 came after this. But so we look at that and we see and we go, okay, what are the commands? So what he's saying is, is you guys have a bus ticket to heaven. This is what I want you to do while you're waiting for the bus to get here. And so he starts with this parable. Once again, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning in verse 14. It says, for it's just like a man about to go on a journey. That man going on a journey is Jesus going to heaven. And he called his own servants. You know who his own servants are? His disciples. You know who his disciples are? Me and you. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you are one of his disciples. So he's talking to you here. He called his own disciples and he entrusted his possessions to them. So this is him entrusting or giving us the work of the church, both as, uh, even as Ryan talked about, we have the global church, we have the local church, and we have the individual members of that church that make it up. We've been given a job. And he says, I'm going to entrust that to you. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two talents. And to one, one talent, depending upon each one's ability. Now, I'm going to pause right there for just a second as we see this. I just want to give you some context. I want you to see what he's talking about when we're seeing the word talents. Because our word in the English dictionary, talent, actually comes from this passage. But it's not what it's intending as he's talking about at that point in time. What talent was, was actually a measure of weight. It was the heaviest weight measure there was in the Hebrew system. But in time, a talent became known as money, a, a weight of money. And in that weight of money, it was basically roughly 6,000 denarii. Now, one denarius, or the multiple denarii, was actually a man's day's wage. That's it. Okay, so... If he's giving you a talent, he's literally giving you 6,000 days of work wages. Now, if you work a six-day week because they took off a Sabbath, that is 1,000 weeks of work that he is giving you. And I started doing some math in my head with that. And if you made 10 bucks an hour and you worked 40 hours a week, 400 hours a week, that's $21,000 a year. If you got all of that, because really a 1,000 weeks is almost 20 years, means he's giving you $420,000. That's one talent. Okay, so when we see this, we also can really take the next step and go, most people make more than $10 an hour. Most adults make more than $10 an hour. Let's just go on a base of $50,000. Over that span of one talent, that's a million bucks he's giving you. A million bucks. So don't feel bad for the guy who only got one. All right? Because his master just gave him a million bucks. The other guy got two million. The other guy got five million. All right? So as we look at that, that's one thing we can hold on to. The second thing we need to see here is that he gave those talents to them, and he just said, whatever your ability is, you do what you got to do with it. He didn't stand over the top. I'm not sure about you, but if somebody were to take a million dollars from me, if I were to give them a million dollars, I'd want to have some at least rules in place. You know what I'm saying? I kind of want to be micromanaging them a little bit to make sure they didn't waste it. He didn't do that. You know why? Because he trusted them. He knew them. He knew these servants. It said he even knew their own ability. So he knew these servants, so he didn't hang over them. He said, you do with these talents what you think is best. He treats each three as an individual while Everybody can have this real big thing about equality. Yes, we are all created equal as human beings. We all have different abilities. We all have different things. I could not stand up here and play that guitar. Plain, simple period, I don't have it. Th these fingers don't work like that. that. That is not my thing. Some of you are like, you know what? I couldn't stand up here and talk to a bunch of people either. I like doing this. We all have been given different abilities. We've all been given different things to use for the kingdom of God. And we'll, so we see that here as he's handing out these talents. He knows their story. He knows them. And one of the cool things is, is as we see this, Master, as we go back to the idea that, that God is our Father, that as a father, 
having six kids, I know my kids' ab- excuse me, abilities. When it comes time to pick up after the dogs, I know which kids are able, and I know which kids aren't. So I'm not going to go to my little man, Levi, who has a tendency to go out and squat next to the poo and point at it and kind of do that. I'm not going to say, hey, buddy, go pick it up, because God only knows what that would end up looking like. But my older kids know. I know their abilities. And so when he says he knows, he gives that, he gives them each an opportunity to succeed. Even though they're not created the same, he gave them all the opportunity to succeed, to say, Here, I'm not going to overwhelm you with one talent or give you five talents because you can only really handle one. And I'm not going to, you know, kind of undercut the guy who has five talents by only giving him one and kind of demeaning him. So he understands that. Also, we need to see in this before we even move on is that this is allegorical, which means there's more to the story than meets the eye. It's kind of like Transformers. It's not just about money. Now, it is about money and how we use it, but it's not just about money. It's also about actual talents. Like I said, we get that English word from it. It's about the gifts we've been given. It's about that living water. It's about the grace and the mercy and the hope and the trust and the good news. The trust that is there. It's things that we need to share. So as I've broken off on that, let's get back to verse 15. Because then he went on a journey. Then he went on a journey. You know how important that is in the story? When I give my kids a list of things to do, you know what the hardest thing is? Is actually walking away from them and expecting them to do it. When I'm like, hey, going to go out for a little bit, got this list. When I get home, I would like for you to have these things done. When I get home, I remember being a kid. I remember summers especially. You know, it was like, here's the list. I was a latchkey kid. Both my parents worked. Here's the list. Why don't you have it done? And all of a sudden, I hear the garage door going. I'm like, oh, geez, running out the door, grabbing the list, trying to figure out what I can do as quickly as I can before they got out of the car. That was kind of my response. Not exactly the wisest way to make it happen, but that was who I was. And I think that's the hardest thing. Then he went on a journey. He said, this is the job I've given you. I'm out. And then it says, immediately. Immediately. The man who had received five talents went and put them to work and earned five more. Can I just take a side note and say success is a product of work? We don't just drift into success. We don't just drift into being found people, finding people. We don't just drift into being saved people, serving people. We had that passion. This guy had a fire lit under his rear, and he was going out there immediately and doing it. And guess what? The guy who had two talents, look what it says next. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. They were excited that the master had given them $5 million and $2 million to manage. Not to have, to manage. Not to waste, to manage. Not to just blow or bury, as we will soon see, but to steward and manage. They realized it was all his that they had been given by him to use for his glory. But then, as we see, that that manager, he did what he was supposed to do. The the master, he expected a return on his investment. Did he expect him to double it? It doesn't really say, but I don't think so. I think he just expected him to do something, because as we see, even as he deals with the, the third guy, he wasn't expecting him to double it. He was expecting him to do something with it. And he didn't know what kind of return they were going to get, and they didn't either. You know, I was reading a a story this morning 
uh, about Elijah. And I know that it's probably one of those things, but it was, it was a whole correlation between Jesus walking on the water and Elijah making the axe head float. And I'm not sure if you know that story or not, but, but uh, they, they had all gone down to the Jordan River to cut down trees, and this guy's axe head fell off and went in the water, and he kind of freaked out. And he's like, I can't lose that. I borrowed it. And part of the reason why I freaked out about it is because he said, or the, the Hebrew culture was, if you borrowed something, which I wish was still part of the culture, but if you borrowed something, you wanted to make sure you got it back to that person in the exact way, if not better than what it was. And so when we see these things have been trusted to these guys, they wanted to make sure that it got back to them better than what it was. But how do you do that? How do you do that with $5 million? How do you do that with $2 million? Well, you've got to take a step of faith. It's a step of risk. There's faith and risk involved in seeing growth happen. There's faith and risk involved when we say found people, find people. There's faith and risk involved when we say save people, serve people. You're going to be putting yourself out there. When you put yourself out there, you might not get return. But then it goes on from there. As we go in and we continue to look, this is what happens in verse 18. We have a shift in the story. The man who had received one talent. Oh, poor guy. He only got a million dollars. Still a large sum of money, but instead of he going and working, look what it says. He went off, he dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Does this lead anybody else in this room to some questions? Why did the five guy and the two guy do what they did and the one guy go completely opposite? These two guys are progressive. This guy here is regressive. He's hiding back. He's, he's hiding the money. Was he jealous that he didn't get what the other two got? I don't know. Was he afraid of losing it? And actually, in Hebrew culture, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, when Jesus talks about the parable about the man finding the stuff buried in the field, then he goes and buys the field, sells everything and buys the field. One of the things about Hebrew culture is, is if you bury something, you are no longer responsible for it. It's okay if you lose it because you buried it. That sounds like a dumb law, but it's there. And I'm almost wondering if he's like, well, as long as I bury it, then I'm not responsible for it anymore. And he goes on from there, and it, you know, maybe it's the security part of it all. Maybe he didn't want to take that step of faith. Maybe he thought, if I lose one, I lose everything. If five guy loses one, he still has four left. If two guy, he still has one left. Maybe there's some issues of fear in there. Well, we're not sure what exactly took, made him do it, but we see that verse 19 says, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. I told you Jesus has this parable where he's talking about an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or an allegory that, that it's more than meets the eye. Here's what he's talking about. He's coming back. Jesus went to heaven to be with the Father, but he's coming back. The book of Revelation is all about it. And when he comes back, he's going to hold his disciples, his servants, accountable for what they've been given. Let that sink in as I ask the question, what are you going to do with what you've been given? All right, we'll go on from there. The mercy, the grace, the living water, the spiritual gifts, the money, what have you done? What will you do with what you've been given? Verse 20, the man who received five talents approached presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, but I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached, and he said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Those are words I believe that many Christians long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know how many times I've gone to a, a funeral of a Christian and they say, well done, good and faithful. He's hearing that today. And I never want to be like, oh, bogus. I knew that guy. I don't think God's saying that. Just going to let you know. However, I'm not the judge. But the judge is coming. And he's coming to lay it all out there. He gave you what he knew that you could handle, and you handled it well. And he responds by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You took the step of faith to invest what I gave you, and you got return. You got return. And even more so, taking it to the next step, he didn't say, by the way, you get to retire. You know what he does? He gives him more responsibility. I bet they were excited about that. I bet they were excited about it because they were excited about the first time when he gave them the stuff. But then verse 24, our friend, the one man's talent. The man who received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. Now I want to pause right there for just a second. Because what follows next says he doesn't know the master. He says, you are a harsh man. Reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went off and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Can I ask you a question in this parable that we've read so far? Whether this is the first time you've ever heard of it or maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Maybe this is the, the billionth time that you've heard it preached on a Sunday morning. At what point in time in this story do we see harshness from the master? He knows his people. He trusts them with five million dollars. He trusts them with two million. He trusts them with one million. He is involved in their life. When they bring back the return, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. There's praise involved in it all. At what point in time is there a harshness that we see in this? He didn't know the master. He actually had a distorted view of the master. As we see him give generously, and be flexible to say, you do what you can do with the gift that I've given you. He had a distorted view. And that distorted view caused him to live in fear instead of in faith. Can I ask you this question? How does a distorted view of God affect the way that you worship him? The way that you follow out his commands? See, oftentimes I'll talk to people about God. And when I talk to people about God, you also have to talk to people about man. That man is sinful and that man is rebellious. And man wants really nothing to do with God. And God sent his son in pursuit of us. And people go, oh, that's not the God I worship. That's not the God I worship. He loves everybody. And I want to say, let me tell you something. You can't just pick and choose out of the Bible what you want. It's not trail mix. Okay, you can't just leave the gross M&Ms behind. I don't know who put those in there. That was a terrible idea. 
Raisins, nuts, great. M&M's, okay. But that's not the Bible. You don't just get to pick out the kinds you want and leave the stuff that you don't. You have to look at it for the whole thing. If you're saying that's not the God that I worship, guess what? You're not worshiping the God of heaven. You're worshiping the God of you. You're worshiping the God that you've created, the one that you can put in a box. We have to be very careful with that. And just a side note, how often do we live in fear because of a distorted view of the master? How often do we not do what we're called to do? How often do we not share with people or serve people because we're afraid? How, how often do we say, you know, I know Acts 1.8 says you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city, and the Judea, which is the country, and Samaria, which is the country that nobody likes, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I know it says that, however, I won't because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the reaction I'm going to get. Well, statistics tell us that far too often people don't want to share. As a matter of fact, according to the most recent study of evangelical believers, people who attend church on a regular basis, people who believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, 80% of regular church attenders believe it is highly important to share their faith with others, to share the living water. The problem is, in the same study, two-thirds of those same 80% have shared their faith a grand whopping total of zero times in the last six months. You know how many things I've talked about that are important in the last six months? Anything I believe is important, I've talked about in the last six months. If I believe sports is important, I'm going to talk about it. If I believe music's important, I'm going to talk about it. If I believe my car is important, I'm going to talk about it. If I believe these things are important, they're going to be in the forefront of my tongue. So if they believe that sharing their faith is important, why isn't it there? You know what answer number one is, according to the survey? Fear. They were afraid. Talent, one guy, he was afraid. He said he was afraid. He had a distorted view of who God was, and he was afraid. I was afraid of ridicule, disapproval, persecution, false judgment. I was afraid that I was unqualified. How many of us are afraid of that? I was afraid. But the master knew, and he still gave them the talent, hoping he'd use it for his own abilities. Answer number two actually is, on that same survey, is apathy. Five and two immediately went to work. The guy with five talents, the guy with two talents. But the one, he went and buried it and did nothing after that. And you know what? I don't, he doesn't say it in the story, but if, if I know the personality of the one, he probably sat back and made fun of the five and two for working so hard. Guys, he's not coming back anyway. No big deal. We can just do our thing. You know, that, that's kind of the mentality. And we have to be careful with that. So this is what the master's reply is in verse 26. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. It's pretty harsh. I mean, he just he at least brought the money back, right? He didn't lose it, right? If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have at least received my money back with interest when I return. I like if you read from the New International Version or the English Standard Version or even King Jimmy, that's actually formed in a question. That, that is a statement in the one that I'm reading, but it's formed in a question. It says, if you really knew that I was harsh, and if you really knew that I did all those things, wouldn't you have done something different? I mean, if I knew my master was harsh, I'm going to work because I don't want to experience the harshness. And it goes on from there. In verse 28, he says this. 
So take the talent from him and give it to the other one who has ten talents. For everyone who has more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Talents are like muscles. Use it or lose it. And then it says this in verse 30, which is one of those ones that we probably aren't even going to really touch on much today, but it's a very debatable thing that people talk about a lot. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where we'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a heavy-duty end to the story. Wait a, wait a second. I mean, like, he just didn't do anything. I mean, really? Is that the way it's supposed to be? I mean... The question comes up is, was this guy actually a follower of Jesus, or was he just a servant by name, not by action? Was he just a disciple by name and not by action? How do you know somebody who is a follower of Jesus? Isn't it by the fruit that they bear? We're supposed to be fruit inspectors. We're supposed to be judges. I understand that. God's the judge, but he's going to know better than even we do. The thing is, is right after this passage, it's where Jesus talks about separating sheep from goats. He's talking about the people who were true followers of Christ and those who were just a part of the flock in the middle of it all, but not actual followers. They didn't do what he called them to do. Now, we don't do it to get salvation, but we do it because of salvation. Because God gave all, we give our lives back. That's why we say, you know what, I'm not afraid to go find people. I don't care about the ridicule. I'm not afraid to serve and give time and make that risk so I can be there and just be a part of this amazing kingdom called the kingdom of God. I mean, we get that opportunity. Aren't you excited about that? That God chose you and God chose me? And, you know, I guess it's real easy because sometimes I look at the five-talent people, and I don't consider myself a five-talent person. I got, I'm barely the two, I think. But still, I've been given so much. I get jealous of the five sometimes. I look at the five and say, oh, I, I just wish I could be. But instead of wishing what we could be, why don't we just do something with what we've been given? Are we going to settle for status quo? Or are we going to multiply our gifts that affect all eternity? That is a question we have to hold on to today. That is a question we have to walk out. See, Christianity isn't just a religion that you join. It's much more of a relationship that has give and take. See, Jesus gave it all on the cross. And we, if you were a believer, have taken that. The thing is, is what are we doing in return? If we're only taking and only taking and only taking, that makes it a really lopsided relationship. It would in your family, and it would in your friendships, and it definitely does with Jesus. So what are we giving in return? Let me give you just some practical action steps this morning. Whether you think you got one talent or you think you got five talents, the reality is we've all been given a lot. Can I tell you the first thing you need to do, whether you think you can do something or not, is pray. We already talked about it. We've already touched on it with praying for the schools this week, praying for the walk uh, this coming up Saturday. But just pray. Pray that God would use you however and wherever he has you at. Pray that the person with five talents that maybe you're jealous of does some amazing stuff and that he doesn't buckle or she doesn't buckle under the pressure. You know how many mega pastors I've seen in the last about year fall from grace, if you want to call it that, fall away 
either alcoholism or sexual misconduct or abusing money or, I mean, the list goes on. You don't think that that five-talent one is a target for Satan? We need to be praying for them, not jealous of them. Second thing is, is be present and represent here and elsewhere. Represent your king. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. We represent him wherever we are. When you go out to lunch today, Courtney, you can help me with this. When they come over to Red Lobster, those Christians, how nice are they, you on Sundays? They're pretty brutal, aren't they? Yeah, they aren't very nice. You know what? That is a stinky representation of Jesus. We've got to stop that. It starts with us. Next, share your faith. Why do you have hope? Why do you have hope? Why, when you see the news, you shake your head and say, I'm just so glad I have Jesus? This world's falling apart, but God, give me Jesus. Why do you have hope? Share that with people. If you don't have hope this morning, dang it, talk to me. Stop waiting. Talk to me. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I know one of the elders wants to talk to you about Jesus. They want you to have that hope. We want you to have that hope. The, the ladies that are sitting next to you that are believers in Jesus, they want you to have that hope. The men that are sitting next to you, the children, if they have Jesus already, they want you to have that hope. Ask somebody, please, share your gifts. We all have different abilities. I think the meaning of this whole passage is, is don't bury them. Use them. Invest them. And that leads to serve. All the servants were judged by what they did with what they have been given not in comparison with everybody else's gifts, but by what they had been given. What are you doing with yours? Can I challenge you to take a risk, to step out in faith and do that? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And once again, thank you for the opportunity to be able to be here this morning and just be present here and for you to speak to us. God, these weren't my words. It just happened to all coincidentally fall in a time when we just see the destruction going all around the world, all the pain, all the things that people are diving into, the drinking the dirt canteens, drinking the, from the, the non-satisfying canteens, when we have the living water, the ever-flowing, always there, and instead we're just throwing that canteen off to the side and letting it run out all over the ground. God, help us with that. Give us strength. Give us power to go and find people. Just like Andrew went and found Peter, and Peter became the rock that you built your church on, the cornerstone, the, 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 the pebble even, the one that, that you built it all around, all because Andrew went. Andrew is a totally different thing. They were brothers. They had different gifts, but God, you used them both for your glory. Help us to find people and help us to serve people. Use our gifts for your honor and glory, not for ours. Pray in your name. Amen.